HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com hrn today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com hrn. On February 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine with the largest mobilization of forces in Europe since World War II. Russian President Vladimir Putin has justified the war by arguing that much of present-day Ukraine was historically Russian land and thus rightfully belongs to Russia. Putin also claims that a pro-Western Ukraine threatens Russian security. In the months since Russia's invasion, more than 3.7 million Ukrainians have fled the country and 6.5 million are internally displaced. Civilian casualties have risen to almost 3,000, although the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights believes the actual figures are significantly higher. Ukrainians now face severe food, water, and energy shortages. The war in Ukraine is a tragedy, and food plays no small part in the catastrophe civilians are facing on the ground. People around the globe are donating money and resources to provide Ukrainians with some relief. Home cooks and chefs alike are putting food front and center in fundraising efforts, from community bake sales to menu specials and tasting events. In this episode, we'll use food as a lens to look at a complex international conflict that threatens to dramatically increase world hunger. From agricultural resources to feeding refugees, we'll see that how and what we eat can be a source of scarcity and comfort, of fear and of hope. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and Three on HRN. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. World Central Kitchen started distributing meals in Ukraine within hours of the initial invasion. They have provided 3.5 million meals in Ukraine and neighboring countries. 
there are teams stationed at 41 border crossings. Despite complex logistics, World Central Kitchen continues to expand their efforts and is serving around 250,000 meals a day. The meals are always fresh and hot and include local dishes like borscht and freshly baked bread. We hear from their CEO, Nate Mook, about food aid on the ground. Sophie Talkov-Burko reports. Nate arrived in Ukraine within days of the initial invasion. I think the last 24 hours may be the first that we haven't had an air raid siren go off in in recent memory. Uh, just a day ago, there were six or seven air raid sirens in one day. Right now, he's stationed in the city of Lviv. He describes the atmosphere as calm but tense, a city on the edge. So now Lviv itself has, has been spared. Um, you know, it's, it is not the main focus of attack right now. So it's the city that's kind of become the humanitarian hub of Ukraine. So hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have flooded into the city of Lviv from locations in the east. So cities like Kharkiv and Mariupol and Dnipro and Kiev and Ukrainians are are leaving their homes. Sometimes their homes have been completely destroyed by the attacks, and they're now here, living in Lviv. Um, you know, and and uh, potentially going to cross the border into Poland or other countries. But now, what we're seeing is many Ukrainians are just staying here um, to see what's what's going to happen next. And so that's that's where I am right now with the World Central Kitchen team. We have a base of operations here in Lviv. We have four warehouses filled with food set up here. And, um, you know, this is where we're, we're sort of organizing our main operations across Ukraine. While Lviv has become a temporary safe haven, it is not immune from the effects of war. The city is dead quiet by 10 p.m. But during the day, it's bustling. There's a lot of people out. There's tons. The traffic is insane right now because of all of the people that have come in from eastern Ukraine. So it's it's bizarre because on one hand, it's a city that feels very alive at parts during the day, despite this sort of threat and the, the tension and the risk of, of, you know, it's in the middle of war. At the same time, you know, it is, it is very tragic. Um, there are dozens, hundreds probably of, of shelters that have been set up over the, uh, across the city. World Central Kitchen is feeding probably close to 100 of them at this point. We have meals going out every single day to shelters across the city. We're meeting families whose lives have been turned upside down, who have fled places like Kharkiv. I met a, a, a woman and she told me, you know, her home simply no longer exists anymore. Her apartment building where she lives no longer exists. She has nowhere to go back to. So she's here now with her kids and she's trying to figure out what's next. She's going to look for a job and try to figure out where to settle. In the early days of the invasion and the attack, you had a lot of people leaving Ukraine. What's happened now is a lot of folks are no longer leaving anymore. To be able to provide food on this mass scale, World Central Kitchen has partnered with 150 restaurants in 21 cities across Ukraine. They also set up a relief kitchen in Chemisha, Poland. They provide food assistance to unreachable cities through sending supplies by train wagon. 
to be able to provide support in case the situation changes. World Central Kitchen is stockpiling food in warehouses. We have food coming in from Poland on trucks every single day. We're sending trucks around the country. Starting this week, we're going to be sending food on the railway. So we're going to send by rail to many of the cities, including Kharkiv and Kiev and Mykolaiv and Odessa, to get food out to these places. But the majority of the manpower comes from the Ukrainians. But what we've been able to do is mobilize a massive Ukrainian force. We're able to keep the restaurants going. We're able to keep people employed. We're able to, you know, these these folks are already doing, we're already doing this anyway. In the early days of the attack, they were cooking for their communities. And so what we've done is just stepped in to support what they're doing. This really is Ukrainians feeding Ukraine. This isn't World Central Kitchen and, you know, an American, a U.S.-based organization coming in and saving the day. That's not it at all. You know, we're coming in to support their incredible work and bring to bear our resources and expertise to support them. While Lviv has become a humanitarian hub, on Nate's recent trip to Odessa, he was surprised by the notable absence of international humanitarian organizations. Odessa's residents are bracing for the worst as Russia inches closer to the strategic city along the Black Sea. It felt like a city that largely was left to its own devices. You know, there isn't a big, and this is true across the country. I mean, we don't see a big UN presence here. We don't see a lot of international presence here. There's pockets here and there. You see a couple of aid organizations here and there supporting some of the shelters. You know, we've seen UNICEF at a couple of places. The Ukrainian Red Cross is doing great work here and in cities across the country. Amidst tragedy and so much loss, Nate still sees remarkable resilience. I met a man, a uh, father named Nikolai. He was here. He's a magician. And he, he you know, we, we met and he started, he was like, you know, let's do some magic. And he was showing me some of his magic tricks. He had me pick a card and, and was showing me. And it was, it was, you know, I could see the smile, the smile on his face. And, and you know, I asked him what, you know, where, where he was from. And, and now he was living here at the gym. I mean, this was his new home for the moment, temporary home while he figures out what's next. And now I asked him, you know, what is he going to do next? And he said, you know, he's going to try to find work. And, um, you know, as a musician, as an entertainer, you know, he doesn't know how that's going to happen, but he's going to try to do whatever he can. And in the meantime, he's going around to, to make the kids smile, to make the kids laugh, both at the shelter where the gym is. And he's, wanted to to do what he loves to do, which was which was magic, magic tricks. World Central Kitchen believes in the immense power of a home-cooked meal. Whether it's bringing food to those in the bunkers in Kharkiv or under siege in Odessa, World Central Kitchen will be there. Boots on the ground, supporting Ukrainians feeding Ukrainians. In the words of Chef Jose Andres, Food at the end is love. As many Ukrainians flee their homes to find refuge in Eastern Europe, Ukrainians in the diaspora grapple with being thousands of miles away from loved ones. Vaidehi Kudyadi takes a look at how some Ukrainian Americans are coming together as a community to process current events.
If you walk along the six-block-long stretch of 7th Street in New York City, you will most likely miss the often invisible restaurant Strecha. Despite its unassuming facade, Strecha has been a mainstay for the Ukrainian community of the East Village for close to 50 years. Started by the St. George Catholic Ukrainian Church, this establishment only serves favorite Ukrainian staples such as borscht and stuffed cabbage. And on Saturdays, this small basement restaurant transforms into a space for Ukrainians and locals alike to come together to learn how to make vereniki, or Ukrainian dumplings. So our Saturday vereniki making classes, it's not actually a classes. It's a, just a gathering of people who want to contribute to our community, to the church community, to Ukrainian community. And of course, when people come there, we show them how to make Vereniki. We try to teach them uh, like our little secrets and tips. And for us, again, for us, it's uh, it's fun because it's fundraiser of the church. And for, for people, it's, it's again, it's uh, they get to know about our culture and traditions. That is Dmitry Kovalenko, who has been the manager, cook, cleaning staff, and social media manager at Strija for seven years. For him, the importance of the Saturday ritual has been amplified in light of the crisis ensuing back home in Ukraine. I think the Vareniki making is uh, the one of the best way to get our community stay together, because it's not only process of making Vareniki which is just once a week on Saturday morning. It's also a process of eating Vareniki then during the week. So we keep all our people from the church, locals, coming to our place and uh, stay together, again, getting uh, news from Ukraine, especially now. So yes, yes, Vareniki. So it's two stages. First stage is making Vareniki. And second stage is eating Vareniki, and that's what unites us. I asked Dimitro how these community gatherings have evolved over the last month. Well, uh, you know, we Ukrainians lately, we all feel very stressed out, very worried, uh, anxious about what's going on in our country. And uh, when we all stay together, it feel much better when we keep ourselves busy doing something, not only getting those terrible news from our country. It again, it helps a lot. And then lately we feel great support from, from local Americans. Uh, they not only, not only by the words they saying, but uh, so many people come to streets and uh, donate uh, directly to to Ukraine to support our military forces in this unfair fight against like uh, greater Russian army. So we are very thankful to Americans, to Ukrainians who stay with us in these days. There are many ways to support Ukraine right now. We can donate to relief efforts, support Ukrainian businesses, or simply show up to express solidarity. But for the Ukrainian diaspora, sometimes it is as simple as coming together to fold dumplings that can provide true solace, even if it is temporary. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break.
This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a restaurant marketing and commerce platform that helps you get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let Bento Box design and build you a website with online ordering and catering, e-commerce, and event management that is optimized specifically for restaurants. With built-in marketing tools like SEO and automated email campaigns, keeping your diners engaged and coming back has never been easier. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash HRN today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash HRN. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow The One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Meat and Three. While the conflict between Russia and Ukraine unfolds, farmers across the globe are feeling the pressure of the conflict from thousands of miles away. Ukraine and Russia are located in a region that is sometimes called the breadbasket of the world. Without their agricultural exports, global food and agriculture markets are feeling the strain. Anna Canny tells us more. Though the invasion of Ukraine will impact many global grains, there's one grain that's growing increasingly scarce, wheat. Together, Ukraine and Russia produce one-third of the world's wheat supply. So you take that amount of wheat off the market, you're going to have significantly higher prices, and we saw that. That's Dr. Kim Anderson. He's a crop marketing specialist at Oklahoma State University. Anderson says global grain markets responded quickly as the conflict began. In March alone, global wheat prices surged by 21%. The United States is the third largest exporter of wheat, behind Russia and Canada. At face value, higher prices could help American producers. But Anderson says it's not that simple. In reality, the conflict may put added pressure on farmers who are already struggling. The supply chain delays caused by COVID-19 have been affecting important agricultural inputs for over a year. We emptied the delivery and the marketing pipeline of the fuel, the oil, the lube, the fertilizers, uh, the machinery. So you had the price increases and then the war started. Fertilizer prices in particular will be a major stressor for farmers planting this year. Those prices were already increasing in recent months, and Russia is one of the world's most important producers of key fertilizers like potash, nitrogen, and phosphorus. If we don't have the fertilizer, we can't increase production, and we may not be able to maintain the production that we have. Even without these input challenges, it would be hard for wheat producers to respond to the shortage right away because sales are made many months in advance. Farmers could try to sell their wheat ahead of time and change their crop plans for the spring, but that's a major risk. It depends on how long the higher wheat prices last. Now, your, your winter wheat producers and your wheat producers, uh, they harvested uh, that wheat in May through September. 
They've sold the majority of that wheat, probably 90% of it's been sold. And so they can't take advantage of that higher price. With these higher prices of inputs and the commodity prices, that increases the amount of money we have to borrow and it increases the risk that the producers and manufacturers have to take. Anderson says the circumstances are unusual. I've been in this job for 42 years. This is the most uh, uncertain time period I've experienced. In the past, American farmers have been able to adjust to the impacts of foreign wars and even step up to help. But this conflict comes after back-to-back stressors, a global pandemic, and harsh weather conditions. Farmers are stressed to the max. Uh, The wheat producers have it in the field. Uh, They've got most of their inputs already applied. However, the weather is not cooperating. We've got drought over the majority of the wheat producing areas. They've got a very large investment in this crop. They've got a tremendous amount of risk in the crop. Uh, If their yield is not average or better, then they're looking at uh, relatively large losses. If farmers around the world can't adjust to fix the wheat supply, some fear that a lack of affordable grain will cause food shortages, especially in Africa and the Middle East. But for now, many U.S. farmers feel powerless to help. Our final story brings us to the origin of this developing issue. We take a look at Ukrainian farmland and how it's faring. Home to about 9% of the planet's most fertile soil, Ukraine's agricultural sector has long and complex roots. But less than a year ago, it was illegal for Ukrainians to sell their own agricultural land. Although the sale of farmland slowly picked up throughout 2021, the war has ground it to a halt. But to get a better idea of how Ukraine reached this point, we need to take a step back. Ellie Katz reports. Almost a hundred years ago, Ukrainians were starving. In 1929, Joseph Stalin forced collective farming onto the country, both as punishment for its independent spirit and as a way to supply food to Russia. Thousands were thrown out of their homes and off their land. Those who were considered especially prosperous farmers or who resisted collectivization were declared enemies of the state. By the end of 1932, Ukrainian farmers couldn't meet the impossible grain quota set by the Communist Party. What crops were produced were sent to Russia or exported abroad. Between 1932 and 1933, the Ukrainian famine killed nearly 4 million people, about 13% of Ukraine's population. Though the Soviet Union long denied the famine ever happened, many countries have recognized it as an act of genocide against the Ukrainian people. When Ukraine gained independence in 1991, these collective farms were divided up and given back to those who had worked the land. But with history looming large in Ukrainian memory, the government placed a moratorium on the sale of agricultural land in 2001. So the original um, goal of moratorium was to not concentrate land in 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 one hands, you know, because uh, at the beginning we have very weak market even for leasing of land, yeah, and the price of leasing was very low at that time, and. Uh, 
everybody understood that the land is undervaluated. The the villagers uh, in villages in peasant they are pretty poor, yeah, and uh, they will sell it for very low prices uh, they land. So that was one reason why uh, politicians said that, okay, we are not ready right now. This is Roman Slaston, the director of the nonprofit Ukrainian Agribusiness Club. Another problem with selling the land, he told me, was that even though Ukrainian farmers received proof of ownership, the government still hadn't mapped out where everyone's plots would be. Most people, they just had some document where it was said that, okay, uh, you own four hectares of land somewhere in the fields of of these collective farms. But there was no documentation schemes and and, and, uh, special um, coordinates to say that the exact piece of land belongs to, to this person. The process of assigning and registering all this land took a long time. It wasn't until 2013 that Ukraine had completed an electronic record of whose farmland was where. And it wasn't until July 2021 that the moratorium actually ended. But the moratorium didn't really accomplish what it intended, which was to keep farmland in the hands of Ukrainian families and individuals. Instead, These independent landowners leased parts of their land for cheap to massive, privately owned agricultural businesses. These big agri-holdings dominate the most profitable part of the market, exports. Many rural Ukrainians rely on this lease money to run small farming operations, growing subsistence crops in addition to products sold to local and domestic markets. But for the most part, the moratorium made it tough for farmers to put land up as collateral in order to buy new equipment, quality seeds, silos, or new agricultural tech. The seven months between the end of the ban in July 2021 and the start of the war in February didn't see much change. Some who had been waiting to sell their land were finally able to, but most were writing out long-term contracts with their lessees. For now, the priorities of small and large farms alike have shifted to the war effort. Yeah, I hope that we will finish this war and we will win and we will withdraw the Russian uh, troops from our territory and we will come to peace. And our farmers will not be involved in uh, in war, will not have to keep a weapon in their arms, will not have to repair the military machinery instead of the agriculture machinery will not have to to kill the, the aggressors which come to our land, you know, but uh, will be able to do the job they used to, to seed, to grow and to feed. Special thanks this week to Nora Peachin, Sophie Talkov-Burko, Vaidehi Kudyadi, Anna Canny, Ellie Katz and Autumn Jemison. Meet and Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. 
That's all spelled out. 